Hey guys, this is my so-called true crime podcast, and I'm your host, Brandy. For those of you who are new, welcome, and thank you for joining me. And to all of y'all who tune in every week, welcome back. Thank you so much for your support. I hope everyone is doing well out there. I had a pretty good week. I'm finally learning how to manage my time better with this podcast. It helps that my husband has been going back to work much earlier this week. It encourages me to get up earlier before my son. It's funny how much I'm able to get done when I wake up before him. It's been really helpful for getting these episodes done. And since my little one is becoming more and more independent, I am able to breathe just a little bit. And having something to do other than be at the beck and call of my kid makes me feel just a little bit more human. This week I was researching another murder case. So this week I decided that I wanted to research something that's a lot less dark. And dare I say it? A little fun. I used to be a fan of the show Leverage. It was on TNT, it ran for like five seasons. If you didn't see it, it was about a group of people acting as a modern day Robin Hood. They created a private company where they would target the super corrupt people to help the poor. And recently I discovered that there's a sequel. Last year, a new season was released. I haven't watched much of it. But the timeline continues on and starts with the reunion of the main characters after what, like 10 years? The lead character from the previous series isn't there and there's some mention that he might have died between the series. Either way, I do love me some Christian Kane. He is pretty hot. Excuse me while I drool. Jeez, I'm sorry. Anyway, the point is that I became inspired to check out some heists. I even had a plan to give you guys an episode with a few different heists, but then I ran into this little gem and I could not stop reading. It was so fascinating. I found the official analysis of Stanley Rifkin's case from John Marshall Journal of Information Technology and Private Law, Volume 2. I will be referencing this chapter plenty tonight. Um, I was so happy to find that it not only gave me the what, but the why as well. And it was so much fun to read. I think that might be because no one died, you know. So without further ado, let's get into the case about Stanley Rifkin, the man who stole $10.2 million through wire transfer in 1978. So let's get into it.
Also, I'm going to throw this out there, and you can laugh if you want, but for some reason, 1978 seems a lot longer than 10 years before I was born. In fact, something that drew me to this case was the fact that Stanley Rifkin was able to commit this crime doing a wire transfer. That blew my mind. Because, and I'm ashamed to admit this, but I was surprised to find that we had the capability to make wire transfers by that time. I'm not sure why I even thought that, because I knew there were computers in 1978. Anyhow, I'm sure I've rambled on long enough. Let's get, let's get going. So, in 1978, 32-year-old Stanley Rifkin ran a computer consulting firm out of his three-bedroom, 400-a-month apartment located in the San Fernando Valley in Southern California. Twice married, Rifkin's chief interest was computers, with which he often played chess. One of his clients was a company that serviced Security Pacific's computers. So, he was a familiar face around the bank's headquarters in Los Angeles. He was tasked with creating a backup system for the wire room. And the wire room is just that, a whole room dedicated to a nationwide electronic wire network, which handles some, I don't know, two to $4 billion of transfers every day for the bank. The backup system would allow the bank to continue to make fund transfers if its primary system went down. And in order to create this backup, Rifkin needed to learn how the system actually worked. There weren't any instructions available to explain how the money transfer system worked, so he interviewed the employees who worked in the wire room. Now, sometime during the summer of 1978, Rifkin sought legal advice from attorney Gary Goodgame. Rifkin told him that he was representing a Fortune 500 corporation and he needed to find an untraceable commodity to use with another corporation. Good Game suggested diamonds, but Rifkin knew nothing about diamonds and he would need assistance in purchasing the diamonds. So Good Game put Rifkin in touch with Lon Stein, a diamond broker. As Rifkin continued to learn about the wire room at Security Pacific National Bank, his interest in diamonds continued to grow. When he met with Lon Stein in person, Rifkin asked him if he could buy $10 million worth of diamonds. Lon told him that it would be impossible to buy that many diamonds in one single transaction, or even a small number of large transactions. But, you know, Rifkin persisted, and he and Lon spoke many times between June and October 25th, discussing different methods of payment and different easy ways in which the diamonds might be purchased. Finally, the two came to an agreement. Stein would go to Geneva to see if he could arrange the transaction with Russell Maz, a Russian government agency that sold diamonds. On October 25th, Stanley Rifkin went to the Security Pacific wire room where bank employees easily recognized him as a computer worker. He took an elevator to the D level where the bank's wire transfer room was located. 
Rosemary Hanses met him at the door and asked why he was there. Rufkin told her that he was doing a study. He timed the operators and took counts of transactions to see if the wire transfer system was working any better than it had been previously functioning. And apparently it wasn't, so Rifkin decided to continue with his plan to rob the bank. In order to transfer money through the wire system, authorized employees would use a code, and that code would be changed every day. And for whatever reason, Security Pacific seemed to be in the habit of posting the new daily code up on the wall inside the wire room for anyone to look at. So Rifkin memorized this code, and he left without arousing suspicion. Then he went to a payphone that was nearby and he changed hats, transforming himself from Stanley Rifkin, bank consultant, into Mike Hansen, a member of the bank's international department. According to one source, the conversation went something like this. Hi, this is Mike Hansen, an international. What's the office number? 286, he replied. Okay, what's the code? 4789, he replied as the adrenaline-powered heartbeat picked up its pace. I need $10,200,000 exactly transferred to the Irvin Trust Company in New York. Transferred to the Irvin Trust Company in New York for credit of the Waschads Handels Bank in Zurich, Switzerland. Okay. I got that, and now I need the inter-office settlement number. Rifkin broke out in a sweat. This was a question he hadn't anticipated, something that had slipped through the cracks in his research. But he acted as if everything was fine, and on the spot, he answered without missing a beat. Let me check, I'll call you right back. So once again, he changes hats to call another department at the bank, this time claiming to be an employee in the wire transfer room. He obtained the settlement number and he called the girl right back. She took the number and she said thanks. After he made the transfer, Rifkin went home. Also, on the 25th, Lonstein flew to Geneva and went to work. He examined $8.145 million worth of diamonds. Apparently, this was an all-day affair because it's reported that this man examined these diamonds between noon on October 26th to the evening time on October 27th. Meanwhile, back in the States on October 26th, Rifkin jumped on a plane bright and early to Switzerland. From the airport, he called Russellmaz. The money had not been credited to their account. I bet at this point, he was freaking out, totally shitting his pants, thinking that maybe he had been caught already. I know I would be. I'd be like, well, that's the sign I needed. Switzerland is where I live now. No way I'm going back. I would be looking for apartments, pulling out the classifieds, applying for jobs. My whole life in America would no longer occur to me. Then, after what must have felt like a millennia, the Zurich Bank got telegraphic confirmation that the money had been transferred to its New York account with the Irvin Trust Company. They called Rusamas in Geneva and told them that the money was there, so the transaction was virtually complete. The next day, Rifkin picked up a baggage ticket for a piece of luggage from the managing director of Russelmas. He boarded a plane for Luxembourg and, and was assured that the diamonds would accompany him. While on the flight, 
Rifkin told Jacques Spalter, who sat next to him, I am a very wealthy man now. But when he got to his hotel in Luxembourg, Rifkin was finally able to see the diamonds. His reaction? Well, in his own words, I was aghast. I didn't have the slightest idea what to do. He didn't have a plan for when he received the diamonds. He just stole $10.2 million and he's what? Flying by the seat of his pants? Are you kidding me? Now, of course, the only logical thing was for Rifkin to get the diamonds back to the US. So he reduced their bulk, taking several of them out of small packages and putting them into smaller numbers of larger packages. And then he put them all in a see-through container that was made to store folded dress skirts. He called Gary Goodgame and told him that he desperately needed to speak to him. I had to take a break while writing my script because I had to break down this following sentence, saying that he had not taken Goodgame's advice not to abscond with the diamonds he planned to purchase. I kind of spiraled on this sentence because the way it's written, at least to me, it sounded like Gary Goodgame told him to buy the diamonds and to steal him. However, now that I've read it to you guys slowly, I see that that's not true. And unfortunately, I probably spent more time than I needed to on that sentence because it really threw me off. And yes, guys, I do get thrown off by how sentences are sometimes written. This happens a lot when I'm reading official documents because they have to be written a certain way much like when I would have to write notes and medical charts. They'd sound like they were written by Shakespeare. On October 30th, Rifkin met Good Game, Le Hermitage Hotel in Beverly Hills. I'm sure I butchered that one. So they're meeting in this hotel and Rifkin fills an ashtray with diamonds. It's literally overflowing. And clearly they have to be meeting in a room, right? Like surely Rifkin wouldn't be filling this ashtray in like, I don't know, a lobby? Because I'm sure since it's the 70s, everyone is smoking everywhere. So Rifkin throws a few gems towards Good Game and he tells him that he just made an unauthorized wire transfer from Security Pacific National Bank and that he had acquired a new identity and was going to, quote, places unknown. He also gave documents to dissolve the company through which he had purported to purchase the diamonds. I don't know what that means. To me, it sounds like he gave him document that legitimized the company he claimed to represent and expected that Good Game would destroy them. I don't know if you guys understand what that sentence meant. I would love to hear from you. Tell me my assumptions are completely wrong and correct me. The very next day, Good Game, along with his lawyer, went to the LA office of the FBI and told them everything. By November 1st, Rifkin was in Rochester, New York, sitting in a hearing concerning rate increases for the Rochester Telephone Company. I'm not sure why he's just sitting in this hearing. Like, maybe it was open to the public. I don't know. But what I do know is he was there to see a man named Paul O'Brien, who he hadn't seen in like two years. And he just pops up like, yo, Paul, I got this cash and diamonds as a result of a West German land deal. And I'd like to convert the diamonds for cash. He wanted Paul O'Brien to set up a New York 
York City-based diamond brokerage. While O'Brien was thinking the proposition over, Rifkin told him that he could not be contacted since, quote, Stanley Rifkin was not in Rochester. I have to stop here for a second. I'm sure if you guys are like me, you're making mental note of all the things that seem highly suspicious. And this one seems to really stick out with me. The 70s were wild because Rifkin is just like, I've done something I've always wanted to do. I've disappeared. And everyone's like, all right. And they just continue on like normal. And Rifkin gave O'Brien $6,000 and he was like, cool. Yeah. Let me tell my boss I'm taking Friday off and I'll wait for your call on Saturday. On Friday night, November 3rd, O'Brien was watching television when he saw the, on the news about the multi-million dollar bank theft in LA. The story identified Stanley Rifkin as the thief, and immediately Paul attempted to reach the appropriate parties in Los Angeles, but he was unable to do so, so he called the Buffalo, New York office of, of the FBI. Rifkin's admissions to attorney Good Game gave the FBI a substantial lead in attempting to catch him. After receiving Good Game's information, federal agents spoke with officials at Security Pacific National Bank and confirmed that the unauthorized wire transfer had taken place. Good Game surrendered the diamonds that Rifkin had given him. Then they interviewed Lonstein, and he confirmed that he had gone to Switzerland to purchase diamonds at Rifkin's request. As it was protocol, the bank recorded Rifkin's wire transfer. The FBI played the recording for Stein, and he identified the voice of the person claiming to be Mike Hansen as Stanley Rifkin. Stein also identified the gems surrendered by Good Game to be similar to the ones that he had purchased. In an effort to find Rifkin, FBI agents checked his last known address and apartment in Sepulveda, California. They gathered background information on Rifkin using his driver's license and vehicle information. The next day, three of Rifkin's employees were interviewed. They said that Rifkin was staying in a motel in La Jolla, California. Based on the information they had, the United States Attorney's Office in LA issued an arrest warrant charging Rifkin with interstate transportation of stolen property. The investigation continued as the FBI tried to locate Rifkin. They interviewed known relatives, former associates, former employers, and anyone else who had had any kind of connection to Rifkin. And none of these avenues turned up anything useful. This is the point in the timeline that Paul O'Brien contacted the FBI, informed them that Rifkin was supposed to contact him the next day. The FBI asked O'Brien if they could record the calls between himself and Rifkin, and he agreed. Saturday, November 4th rolled around and there was no word from Rifkin. However, in the afternoon of November 5th, Rifkin called O'Brien. He knew that he was in trouble and O'Brien tried to convince him to turn himself in. One against the FBI is real bad odds, admitted Rifkin, but he turned down O'Brien's offer to help if he turned himself in. Instead, he asked O'Brien to send the $6,000 back in a plain brown wrapper to a post office box in the name of Daniel Wolfson. Wolfson lived in Carlsbad, California, near San Diego. Postal authorities provided the FBI with the address that Wolfson used when he obtained the post office box Rifkin was using. 
The authorities looked up any address that Wolfson had been at recently and dispatched officers to all of the addresses. They were given Rifkin's license plate and told to look for his gray 1972 Datsun 240Z. Unable to find the car, the agents decided to try arrest Rifkin at Wolfson's apartment. Late in the evening of November 5th, Daniel Wolfson responded to knocking on his door. It was Norman White and Robin Brown. They identified themselves as FBI agents and asked to come in. Wolfson agreed to talk, but only in his doorway. When the agent showed him the picture of Rifkin, Wolfson said, Wolfson said he wanted to talk to his attorney to determine his rights. Brown asked him if he had anything to hide, and Wolfson replied that he hasn't trusted the government since Watergate. Brown told Wolfson that he wanted to come in and talk about Rifkin. Wolfson said no, and he held his arms out on each side of the doorframe. Brown informed him that his failure to cooperate might result in him being guilty of harboring a federal fugitive, and then asked him when the last time he had seen Rifkin. Again, Wolfson requested to talk to his attorney. Brown asked if Rifkin was inside the house and Wolfson shrugged and said, I don't know. Finally, the agent informed him that they were going to enter the house using force if necessary. So Wolfson moved aside and let the agents enter. While they were searching the home, Rifkin appeared in the doorway of a vacant bedroom and said, here I am. The agents placed him under arrest and escorted him back to the bedroom so that he could finish getting dressed before leaving. Rifkin was searched and he made a comment that he and Wolfson had practiced being searched the previous day. Why? This case is so bananas. I want to dive deeper into the seemingly unimportant things. Like, why are you practicing being searched? What is the point? And why doesn't anyone ask him why? Anyway, the agents advised Rifkin of his rights, and Rifkin said, I guess you want the diamonds. He went and pointed to a black and brown canvas suitcase and removed a plastic shirt case from it, and inside were some like 30 packets containing the diamonds. After Rifkin was arrested and the diamonds were recovered, the bulk of the investigation was complete. Rifkin was charged with interstate transportation of stolen property, two counts of wire fraud, entering a bank to commit a felony, and smuggling. A lot of the evidence that prosecution would need to convict Rifkin was not readily available. The witnesses in Switzerland were necessary to paint the whole picture of Rifkin's crime. But things in Switzerland run a lot differently than in America. Under Swiss law, no agent of foreign government may conduct a criminal investigation in Switzerland. So the FBI could not interview the witnesses, and neither could the U.S. Attorney's Office. Only the Swiss authorities could conduct interviews, and they did this by deposition. So the FBI had to come up with a list of individuals that they wanted questioned in Switzerland. Now I'm going to relay all of this in list form just so that you guys are able to keep track with everything that I'm saying. So the first was a bank official from Wazchad Handels Bank in Zurich to, you know, lay a business records foundation for documents necessary to show that the money Rifkin stole was received by that bank from the Irving Trust Company. 
to Werner Opleger, a courier who brought the diamonds from the Russian trading company to the Swiss Airlines in Geneva. Three, three other couriers who helped Opleger transport the diamonds and who might be necessary to establish the chain of custody. Four, a Swiss Air personnel who received the diamonds and could testify that Rifkin picked up the diamonds. Five, Alex Malinin, the employee of Russelmaz who handled the transaction. He showed diamonds to Lonstein and received notification that the funds to pay for them had been wired transferred to Rusomas account. Alex Melanin, the employee of Rusomas who handled the transaction, he showed diamonds to Lonstein and received notification that the funds to pay for them had been wire transferred to Rusomas account. He also received the wire sent by Rifkin under the name of Nelson from Los Angeles. Six. Jacques Spalter, Rene Brune, and Robin Page, and other witnesses who had less crucial information about the case. And guys, this deposition is crazy. So firstly, the witnesses that were testifying were reminded in great detail of Swiss perjury law. Okay, not weird. Then, get ready guys, each question is asked of the Swiss magistrate in English. Then this question is relayed to the witness in either French or German. The magistrate and the witness then would discuss the question and the answer. Then the magistrate summarizes the answer and dictates them to the court reporter in English. When the witness testimony was complete, the court reporter would reread the entire testimony to the witness and then the witness would sign a summary transcript. At the end of the day, this whole bananas process doesn't even matter because Rifkin's case wouldn't go to trial, but we'll get into that. Don't you worry. Much of the defense effort focused on search and seizure issues, not computer technology. But it shows the difficulties in drafting a warrant and making an arrest where there is very little time. A major part of the defense was a motion to suppress evidence seized at the time of Rifkin's arrest. The defense argued that the arrest warrant was defective since it didn't establish probable cause for Rifkin's arrest. They also argued the use of information from O'Brien was violation of Rifkin's attorney-client relationship and that the entry of Wolfson's apartment violated the requirement of U.S. v. Prescott, which states that the court invalidated the arrest warrant and rejected the attorney-client argument. These contentions are of very little interest. Now, Judge Matt Byrne granted a substantial part of the defense motion. The need for specificity in support of the arrest warrant being very clear. However, the affidavit in support of the arrest warrant was, quote, totally void of any source information whatsoever, unquote, and that, quote, it is impossible to tell where Mr. Brown, the FBI agent, obtained the information that is set forth in subparagraphs A through F, including such obvious shortcomings as not stating the name of the diamond broker, not stating the name of the individual who met with Mr. Rifkin in Los Angeles, 
who Mr. Rifkin allegedly exhibited the diamonds to, not stating where the information was obtained from the bank, not stating whether the recording ever had been listened to, not stating any information whatsoever about where they heard what occurred in Switzerland, not stating how they knew the diamonds were picked up just totally void of any information, end quote. So the court went on to rule that there were no exigent circumstances justifying the arrest of Rifkin inside Wolfson's home, absent a valid warrant. The prosecution was like, cool, but Rifkin has a propensity to suicide, that he might hold Wolfson hostage, that he might escape, and that he might flush the diamonds down the toilet. The prosecution is trying to establish exigent circumstances which might justify failure to obtain a valid warrant. But Judge Byrne concluded that, quote, the only exigent circumstance is created when the agents go to the door and ask if Rifkin is there, making the point that any statements made by Rifkin and the evidence taken at the time of his arrest were tainted by the illegal arrest and had to be suppressed. Also, the court ruled that the items seized from a search warrant served the next day were also illegally tainted, so they were suppressed as well. As the grounds for this motion, the defendant asserts that arrests was unlawful on three distinct grounds. One, it was made pursuant to a warrant not founded on probable cause. Two, it was the result of deliberate and surreptitious intrusion by the government into an attorney-client relationship of the defendants and was a violation of his Sixth Amendment right to the assistance of counsel and his Fifth Amendment due process right. And third, it was the product of unlawful entry. Before I continue on, because this story is far from over, I want to talk about something that stood out to me. One, his defense lawyer made an argument that the information that came from O'Brien was a violation of attorney-client privilege. I was confused by this because originally I couldn't find anything that even indicated that O'Brien was an attorney. Remember when we even met him? He was at a hearing for telephone rates. In what capacity? Well, now I know it was an attorney. Now, I'm no expert, and if anyone can help me understand this, I'm all ears. But was it? Or is it still common practice for an attorney to set up a diamond broker? Because to me, this just seems weird. And number two, propensity to suicide? Really? I know the FBI had questioned Rifkin's mother as well as those who knew him, but as hard as I tried, I was unable to find any proof that this was a credible claim. However, later on, I will go into this more, but at this point in this hearing, there is no mention whatsoever that he had a, quote, propensity to suicide. And to me, nothing about the crime he committed even suggested that he was suicidal. More like he was an idiot who took advantage of an opportunity that was presented to him. Anyhow, moving on. With the court's ruling on the arrest warrant and the seized evidence, all the prosecution had was a tape of Rifkin making the phone call, which resulted in the transfer of the $10.2 million. This evidence, along with the testimony of Gary Goodgame, 
Paul O'Brien and Lon Stein would have been enough to convict Rifkin. Again, none of this matters because Rifkin, while on bail, finds himself in a heap of trouble once again. About six months later, on February 9th, 1979, Patricia Ferguson met with Joseph Sheehan. She told him that she represented a principal who wanted to move funds and who needed access to a bank. She told Sheehan that the principal was the, the Stanley Rifkin Security Pacific electronic funds transfers. Later, Rifkin met with Sheehan and told him that he wanted to make a wire transfer between a million dollars and fifty million dollars from the Union Bank in Los Angeles to the Bank of America in San Francisco. Once the money was there, Rifkin would purchase bearer bonds and flee to Mexico City. This time, Rifkin said he would do it right, I guess referring to his earlier theft. Unlike Good Game and O'Brien, Sheehan didn't turn Rifkin into the FBI. He didn't have to. He was an FBI agent working in an undercover capacity. Based on these facts, the government prepared a second complaint against Rifkin, this one charging him with conspiracy to cause false entries to be made in a bank, transportation of stolen property interstate, and failure to appear. Within two weeks, Rifkin pleaded guilty to two of the charges against him in the $10.2 million theft, and the government dropped the other charge and agreed not to prosecute him on the attempted theft charge. Aware of the publicity that the case had received, and no doubt aware of the numerous requirements for an uncoerced and knowing plea of guilty, Judge Byrne on several occasions made sure that Rifkin understood his rights and the consequences of a guilty plea. On March 26th, 1979, Rifkin was sentenced. His attorney argued that he was a, quote, unique individual and pleaded with the judge for a unique and imaginative sentence for Rifkin. Judge Byrne didn't agree. He noted that Rifkin had numerous opportunities to abandon his plan and that there were many stops along the way that required rethinking and remotivating his decision to commit the crime. Defense attorney Robert Talcott argued that Rifkin did not commit his crime freely and voluntarily, but was motivated by an unconscious desire for self-annihilation. That everything Rifkin did was done to be caught and punished, though attorney Talcott stressed the possibility of a unique sentence for Rifkin, the court seemed concerned mainly with deterrence. Judge Byrne dismissed the defense's suggestion that Rifkin assist financial institutions to study the wire, their wire transfer systems and prevent crimes such as his own. Judge Byrne said, quote, if he can't deter himself, how is he going to deter others? The prosecution argued for a maximum sentence of 10 years. Attorney Catherine Stoles urged that society needed to be protected from Rifkin and that Rifkin was a con artist and a manipulator and a habitual liar. She scorned the idea that Rifkin could be of value to financial institutions concerned about computer crime. Quote, I doubt that the Security Pacific Bank would want him on their premises for any reason. Unquote. Rifkin spoke at last. I feel there are two me's, he said. One rational and one not. Apparently, the irrational side would rise up from time to time. When that would happen, he would take a step forward to committing a crime. 
but the court didn't buy this explanation. Whatever his motivation, he had many chances to get out and he didn't take any of them. He continued to evade the law. When he was granted bail, he still attempted to involve himself in yet another bank fraud scheme. The court saw this as a total disregard for the law, with Rifkin showing no remorse. Finally, in handing down the sentence, the judge said that he hoped his sentence would serve as a warning that a crime such as Rifkin's is serious, not just because of the money involved, but also because of Rifkin's continuing pursuit of criminal activity. Rifkin was sentenced to eight years in federal prison. On May 15, 1980, there was a hearing to modify his sentence. The motion was denied. Then Security Pacific National Bank filed a civil complaint with Los Angeles Superior Court. They wanted him charged with fraud, conversion of personal property, and a number of other counts. They also wanted the return of all the money and property taken from the banks, as well as anything purchased with the money. The bank also wanted, quote, all profits, interest, proceeds, revenue, royalties, or other advantages gained from any publication, sales, and republication rights in any form, be it movie, television, or video rights, speeches, seminars, or any other distribution for profit of any material based on or dealing with the plaintiff's secret code or procedures or the events or circumstances dealing with Rifkin's obtaining access to or using said secret codes or procedures, unquote. To me, it seems like an awful lot of words to use to just say that we don't want him making money off of the stupid way we post our secret code on the wall for anyone to see. I'm sure they wouldn't want it to be portrayed in a movie or book about how easy it was for Stanley Rifkin to get his hands on their super secret codes. What made Rifkin do it? The obvious answer is $10.2 million. I mean, it's clear that he was not equipped to accomplish his goal. He failed to anticipate the problems involved in bringing the diamonds back to America and he failed to find people to work with once he returned. It all just screamed amateur. It seems that Rifkin committed his crime simply because the challenge was there. He certainly had experience with electronic fund transfer systems. In 1976, he worked for Payment Systems, Inc., and this company experienced several frauds involving ATMs. This is why he knew what questions to ask about how the Security Pacific system worked. Rifkin didn't quite fit the computer criminal stereotype. His lack of ability to carry out his crimes successfully reflects the loner image that he portrayed in the eyes of many who knew him. The suicidal side his lawyer kept referring to was Rifkin doing everything he could to get himself arrested. As part of his sentence, Rifkin offered to teach a course in computer fraud for the FBI. His rapid admission that he had committed the crime and his questions about the Security Pacific personnel with whom he interacted while he committed the crime all suggest that he was out of contact with reality when he committed the crime. Whether this was because they represented parts of the puzzle that did not challenge him, because he was suicidal, or because he was kind of an idiot savant is really impossible to say. It may also be that Rifkin, like many people, was victimized by the media's perception of crime in general, 
and computer crime in particular. Filling an ashtray with diamonds, talking about a new identity, and going to places unknown is kind of is the kind of thing that may give a TV criminal a quick shot of macho enthusiasm. But it also is the type of thing that both on TV and in real life seldom does the criminal much good. Finally, it is impossible to look at, Rif at the Rifkin case without keeping in mind the publicity value of a $10.2 million crime. Wolfson, the man at whose house Rifkin was arrested, was talking with media about Rifkin's ability to commit a computer crime about a year before Rifkin's theft from the Security Pacific Bank. With other computer criminals like Jerry Schneider and Bertram Seidlitz attempting to go from computer criminal to computer consultant as a result of the publicity that they had received, it is possible that Rifkin too felt that even in failure he could be a commercial success. In short, the documents offer many clues, not only to Rifkin's character, but to how society can prevent, investigate, and prosecute computer crime. The Rifkin case shows just how awkward a major bank, a prosecutor's office, and one of the biggest bank thieves in history can appear when computer crime brings them face to face with unfamiliar problems. This case has so many unusual facts, but it is not unique. When it comes to computer crimes, they are all amateurs much of the time, so they seem like average people. Oddly, his caper eventually made it into the pages of the Guinness Book of World Records in the category of biggest computer fraud. However, that is no longer something that Guinness offers. Stanley Rifkin had used the art of deception, the skills and techniques that are today called social engineering. Thorough planning and a good gift of gab is really all it took. Well guys, we did it. We made it through another episode. This one was fun for me. Something I've enjoyed a lot lately is looking up history. I really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did researching it. If you did enjoy it, give it a like. Leave me a review. I'd love to hear from you guys. You can find this podcast on most platforms, so help me out. Show me some love. You can find me on Facebook at My So-Called True Crime Podcast. I'm on Twitter at My So-Called Crime Pod. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm learning, so send me a tweet. Uh, my Instagram handle is mytruecrimepod. Send me an email at mysocalledtruecrimepod at gmail.com. If you would like to show your support with donations, then buy me a coffee. I left a link in the show notes for you guys. Whatever you do, just be safe out there, and I hope to catch you next time. Good night.